0: If you're being seated, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. So I have a question for you this morning. Uh, are you a, a, a theologian? You may say, no way, I'm not a theologian. Theologians, that's, you know, dusty, dry relics of uh, the past. Uh, as one theologian himself, Karl Barth, once said, the word became flesh, and then through theologians, it became words again. All right? <laughs> I don't want to be a theologian. They're, they're argumentative and contentious and proud, right? They use big words like superlapsarianism and hypostatic union to argue over irrelevant subjects for hours on end, like did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or not? You know what I mean? I don't want to be a theologian. But you know what? You are. If you have ever thought about God, you're a theologian. Even Charlie and Lucy are theologians. Charlie said, you know what I wonder? Sometimes I wonder if God is pleased with me. Do you ever wonder if God is pleased with you? He just has to be, says Lucy. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know if either of their theologies are are very good, but they're thinking about God. Everyone thinks about God. Even atheists think about God. The God that doesn't exist or can't exist. You know, actually, many atheists uh, do believe in God. They just hate God. Agnostics think about God. They become depressed or discouraged or disillusioned because they believe there is a God, but he's a God who doesn't want to be known. Everybody thinks about God. So everybody's a theologian. Uh, Every time you pray, you are practicing theology. Every time you share your faith, you are practicing theology. Every time your child asks you if their pet is going to be in heaven, you are practicing theology. When you think about death and dying and eternity and the afterlife, when you think about whether or not God loves you and is pleased with you. You're practicing theology. Everyone is a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian? A truthful, accurate theologian? Or does it really matter at all? I'm going to argue that it does matter. Uh, This summer we're going to study theology. And uh, this is the thesis for the summer. Knowing about God helps us know God. And knowing God is the goal of life. Knowing about God helps us know God, and knowing God, that's why we're here. That's the point. So this morning, I'm going to give you three reasons why good theology is critical to life. First is this. Good theology leads to true worship. Good theology leads to true worship. Uh, the word theology is actually a combination of two Greek words, theos and logos. Theos meaning God, logos meaning word. It's a word about God. Theology is the study of God. God is the object and God is the most important object of study for any person. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing in life? And he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Notice he says, you need to love God with your mind. You need to think right about God. It's critical. But he also says, thinking right about God is not the goal in and of itself, It's a means to an end. The goal is that you would love God, which is another way of saying worship God. The goal of thinking about God is so that you would know God and love God and worship God. That's the point. James Packer, great theologian, wrote a book on theology. Not too long. A summary of Christian theology, and he titled it Knowing God. Intentionally, he did not title it Knowing About God, but knowing God, because his goal in having people read his book is so that they would not just know about God, but they would know God and love God and worship God. He said this, theologies that cannot be sung or prayed, for that matter, are certainly wrong at a deep level, and such theologies leave me in both senses cold, cold cold-hearted and uninterested, He's saying, I don't want to just know about God, I want to know God. I want to experience God in all of his riches and all of his glory. As David said, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David says, I don't want to just know about God, I want to know God. But I do need to know about him so that I can know him as he truly is. St. Teresa of Avila wrote years ago, he who understands him best loves and praises him best. So we need to know about God so that we can know God because that's the point of life, knowing God. So we're going to study theology this summer. First reason, because good theology leads to true worship, accurate worship. Second, true worship transforms our character. 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite verses on sanctification, says this. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Uh, to behold the glory of God is another way of saying worship. The glory of God is a theological term. It's shorthand that describes all that God is and all that God does. It's a a summation. The glory of God is who God is and what God has done. It's the beauty and splendor of God. To behold that is to worship God. We all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror who God is, worshiping God as he actually is, are consequently being transformed into that very same image. What is it that changes us? Worship. worship. Worship changes us. Actually, for the last several years, my prayer for us as a congregation is that we would learn how to worship God better. It's been my prayer for my own life that I would learn to to genuinely love worshiping God, knowing God as he actually is and, and enjoying the process of just lifting him up and saying, God, this is who you are. I know who you are and I praise you and thank you for that and learning to let my heart and my mind fully engage in that worship. Why? Because that changes us. A true worship Changes us, it transforms us. I have a, a friend who is uh, graduating, or just graduated this weekend, class 2016. Okay, got a few of you still here, haven't left town quite yet. And uh, I shared with her uh, this verse is my prayer for her just the other night Philippians 1 This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So that you may approve the things that are excellent is literally so that you may may test and approve and and acknowledge the things that literally differ. The things that differ. That is, uh, the things that are best. Because you're surrounded with so many evil things but also so many good things but then there are a few things that are excellent they differ from everything else that you may test and approve and lay hold of the things that are actually most valuable and most important when, when I speak of character what I'm talking about is uh, your, the affections of your heart your character in a sense is just a reflection of what you actually love that's what character is I'm, I'm a Um, a a pretty simple person in that respect. And when I think of character, um, you know, I can can list attributes, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, as Paul does in Galatians. But what it really boils down to is, what do you love? What do you value? What do you see as truly excellent? The more you behold God, you begin to love God, and then you begin to love the things that God loves. Right? And your priorities in life become rearranged. That's character. Okay, that's reflected in character. So true worship changes us, it transforms our character. Third, character overflows in godly behavior. Now, normally when we think of sanctification, right, that process of transformation, becoming holy or becoming like Jesus Christ, we jump immediately to behavior. Right? We think of behavior. We think, uh, there are things in my life, these things need to change. I need to stop doing this, or I need to start doing this, or if we're in a legalistic mood, we look at other people and say, you need to stop doing that, and you need to start doing that, right? And that's what you need to do. And We, we think of behavior. We start with behavior. But behavior is actually, in a sense, the, the end of the process of transformation. It starts with good theology. I think right about God, and when I think right about God, I can worship God as he actually is, not as I wish him to be, or hope him to be, or imagine him to be. And when I do that, it changes me. It changes what I love. And when what I love is changed, then my behavior will change. There will be things that I no longer want to do, things that I now long to do. Because character is, in a sense, just what you love, what your affections are. Again, let me put it in the simplest terms. You will always do what you want to do. You can write that in the margin of your Bible. (laughs) This is true. You will always do what you want to do. So if you do something, it's because you wanted to do it. And you wanted to do it more than you wanted to do other things. That's just how we we work. That's how we function. As Christians, we know that tension within us that Paul described in Romans chapter 7. Where sometimes we actually kind of want to do several things. Because there's something in us that Paul describes as flesh. We're born with it. It is this bent to follow after our self-interested nature. And we kind of want to do that. But then the Spirit is speaking to our spirit. And we kind of want to do something else. And there are two things we want to do. And you know which thing you will do? The thing that you want to do more. (laughs) It's just—it's that simple. Whichever affection or love is strongest in you at that moment is the thing that you will actually do. So when we have good theology... We worship God as He is, and we begin to love God, and we love the things God loves, and that changes our character. We become different things and so different people. And so the things then that we want to do more than others are the things that God wants. Our behavior changes. That's that the the end of the process is reflected in what we do, what we say, how we act. Let me illustrate. Um, uh, every profession you know, has its own club, right? So you, uh, you have to have certain certifications, qualifications to get into that particular club and that allows some people to get into the club and then everybody else has to stay out of the club, right? Every profession has their own club. Pastors and theologians have their own club, right? They actually have several clubs and uh, they can keep uh, some people out and invite other people in. One of the big clubs is called the Evangelical Theological Society, right? And to get into that club, you have to have at least a Masters of Theology to get into that club. And they uh, have an annual meeting of their club where everybody who's in the club gets to come to that, and they hold it in really exotic places like Atlanta, Georgia, right? It's never in Vegas. I don't know, you know. uh, They probably get a higher turnout if it were, but they don't hold it in Vegas. I remember a few years ago, uh, Matt and Blake got to go to our club meeting, and I was not able to go. So when they got back, I said, well, how was it? How was ETS? And they go, Wow, today was really, it was different. Well, tell me, because usually it's not that spellbinding, right? So, so, yeah, we went to one lecture. Pretty prominent theologian was giving a lecture. When he finished his reading of his paper, I mean, just hand it out, man, right? So he, he finished reading his paper. He opened it up for questions. And another very prominent theologian began to ask him questions and uh, the questions got a little more aggressive and the answers got a little more aggressive and pretty soon they were yelling at one another and literally almost came to blows the room had to be cleared out and i was like oh my gosh that's awesome i mean i mean that's terrible did you get video i think they missed the point of theology I think they missed the point of theology. Because good theology should cause us to worship God, and when we worship, we're changed and we love different things. Maybe we're not so in love with being right. We're not so in love with winning the argument. We're in love with displaying Jesus Christ in all of our relationships. That's, that's the point, right? Character should overflow in godly. Behavior. Why? Because good theology protects us from sin. Good theology protects us from sin. This week I was meditating on Psalm 119. Longest psalm in the Bible. A couple of verses I pulled out for you. Verse 11 and 165. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Good theology guards us and protects us from sin. I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians if you're not already already there. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul writes, as a result, that is as a result of uh, the equipping that has happened, the, the good theology that has been passed on from generation to generation and person to person, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Uh, why do we sin? We sin because we believe lies. We believe that something that is, that is not valuable is actually valuable and we chase after it and we pursue it. That's why we sin. We, we're deceived. And Paul says, oh, this truth that's been handed down from generations and to us guards and protects us from, from trickery, from craftiness and deceitful scheming so that we are protected from sin. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Notice notice where he starts. They, They believe lies. They don't believe truth. They've been deceived, and it results in foolish behavior. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 20, Paul says, but you did not learn Christ this way. You learned truth. You learned good theology, uh, since indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That you believe truth, that you live truth as a result. Because you've been transformed by truth. So when I think rightly about God. Then the truth of who God is shines into my heart and into my soul. And you know what it reveals? It reveals that I'm not naturally like God. I'm naturally very susceptible to becoming deceived. And to following after the lusts of my own heart. And as a result I cling to God. Kelly Capic, a young theologian, wrote this. In theological terms, we must come to confess that we are addicted to sin, addicted to self, whatever form that may take, pious or impious. I see God as he is, and then I see myself as I am. And I recognize that I'm vulnerable to deceit. I'm vulnerable to sin, and what do I do then? As a result, I reach out and I lay hold of God again and again and again, moment by moment, every day. And what does that do? It guards and protects me from sin, A good theology protects us from sin. Good theology motivates evangelism. If I think rightly about who God is and God's glory, his light shines down into my heart and my soul, I see myself as I am. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. And then when I see myself as I am, I look out at others and I begin to see that what's most important about them is, have they experienced God's grace? I see them as they are and it it breaks down barriers and it gives me compassion for them. I want them to know what I know. It motivates my evangelism. Romans chapter 9, Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, that is other Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul looks out and he realizes that he was a hard-hearted man. And yet God's grace broke through to him, and he looks out at his fellow Jews and realizes that they're hard and hard as well, and they're resistant to Jesus Christ. He says, you know, I could almost wish that I could lose my salvation so that they could have salvation. Paul was so deeply motivated for the lost because he had received God's grace, and not just for Jews, but for for all nations, for all Gentiles, for all non-Jews. In fact, Paul previously had been quite a racist, right? Right? He did not have compassion for anyone else other than Jews. And yet when he received the gospel of Jesus Christ, his heart opened up and he began to love all people. He longed for all people to know Jesus Christ. You know, I I think in our generation we often think of racism as a pretty recent thing, but it's not. It began, I guess, at the Tower of Babel, where the nations were created and they spread out, and the result was distrust And division, no harmony, discord, animosity, anger, fighting, conflict. And you know, the only thing that will heal that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will heal that. The gospel of Jesus Christ causes me to see myself as I am, as I truly am laid bare before the eyes of God, and as a result, what do I see? I see others just as they are. I see that the most important thing about them is nothing superficial. Okay? It's, not, it's not skin. It's not language. It's not their background. Do they know Jesus Christ? Okay? It is the gospel that breaks down that barrier of the dividing wall. It is the gospel that has power to save and to overcome. Only the gospel. You know, the gospel is good theology, and it motivates evangelism. Third, the gospel or good theology encourages discipleship. What does God love? God loves people because he made people to last. And not everything lasts. Actually, most things don't last, but people last. So God loves people. He made them in his image. They would endure forever. And so he loves people and he wants all people to be with him. That's what God loves. And what God wants us to love is he wants us to love people. He wants us to care that people know him, that's evangelism, and that people learn to follow him and live with him, that's discipleship. And he has given us to one another, that's the theology of the church, ecclesiology, he's given us to one another so that we can help one another more fully love Jesus Christ and follow him. That's why we have one another. That's discipleship. We pour our lives into one another so that we will love God more deeply. Uh, some of you know my story, uh, uh, but some of you don't. But when I moved down here from uh, New York to Texas, I, had ne- I really had never had a-, a good Christian friend ever in my life. And I got here to Texas, and the first week, a couple of Young Life leaders, a couple Aggies came to my door, and they pulled me out of my house, and they drug me to Young Life Club, and uh, they made me stand up and help lead worship, which Tim never invites me to do. And as I, you know, help lead worship, kids are making fun of every word that I said in my accent and, you know, but they weren't really making fun of me. they were just having fun with me. And by the end of that first week, because of these Aggies, I had Christian friends for the first time. And these, these two guys, Tom Douthat and Rich Young, there were other young life leaders that invested in me, but Tom Douthat and Rich Young gave time to me. Now I, c- I come from a really strong Christian home. And my parents had introduced me to the gospel very, very early in my life. But at that moment in my life, what I needed was someone who was just a step ahead of me in life who would show me how to take that next step, who would walk with me and teach me to walk with Jesus in that next step. And these two college guys, these two Aggies, they sacrificed their time. I mean, you know, they needed to be studying. Rich was actually a vet student at the time. He was overwhelmed with studies And Tom was doing his undergrad, and he was overwhelmed with studies. And uh, they could have been working and making money, but they gave me their time. And they sacrificed uh, financially to be with me and spend time with me and teach me how to love Jesus. That's discipleship. Men and women, my desire for us as a church is that every single one of us would know how to really clearly present the gospel of Jesus Christ. No confusion. So that if you meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus, you know how to lead them right to that point where they know how to say yes to Jesus. They understand that Jesus died for their sins. That he was buried, but he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he conquered death, he conquered sin. And if they simply believe in him, they have eternal life. I want everybody in our congregation to know how to simply speak the words of the gospel. And I want everyone in our congregation to know how to take a new believer or believer who's at any point and help them walk in the next step of spiritual life. That's discipleship. If you want to know what's the point of the church, the church's point is this, evangelism and discipleship. There you go. Now let's go make disciples, right? That's, that's the point, evangelism and discipleship. That's good theology. Right? Good theology motivates evangelism and encourages discipleship. Good theology actually contributes to a strong society. It changes society. What is the foundation of a strong culture? It's marriage. Right? Marriage is the social institution that makes for a strong culture. And who invented marriage? God invented marriage, right? Society didn't invent marriage. People didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage because he made male and female, he brought them together, and the two became one flesh. That is family. That's what that means. God invented that. And so when we fight for family, good family, strong family, godly family, we are actually building good culture. We're building a good society. Now, men and women, I know we don't have have perfect marriages. None of us have perfect marriages. Some of us have even been in marriages that, that failed, but we still can understand what good marriage is and we can promote it and live it. Even if we're not perfect, we can show to our culture what marriage is about. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse seven says this. You shall teach these words or these truths, this uh, theology that Moses had received. He said, you shall teach these things diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. That's what good godly family does. Theology is infused into the life of the family itself. And John Wesley once wrote, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all of the theologians of England. I love that. Because they did theology in the context of family. It's one of the other building blocks of good culture is work. Remember last uh, semester, at the beginning of semester, we were studying Ecclesiastes. And we talked about the theology of work. For most people in our culture, work is a curse. Right? I just, I just got to get through the day and put up with it. Or work becomes an addiction. Something that is a a God, work itself or what work can produce and give to me. But that's not a good theology of work. A good theology of work is this. God gave us work before the fall. Work is a gift. A Part of being made in the image of God is that we get to create and we get to recreate and we get to shape things physically but also mentally and intellectually with our words but also with our hands. And that reflects the creativity of a sovereign creator. And so when we work, we reflect the image of God in us that's a gift to us. Is it perfect? No. Remember, it was given before the fall, but then a fall made it yield thorns and thistles. It can be frustrating. And it can be unfulfilling at times, but work itself is a gift. That's theology of work. So when we apply that ethic to work, we demonstrate to the world around us that we are made in the image of God. Right? Family, work. Another marker of a strong culture society is what do we do for the poor? What do we do for those who are vulnerable and can't care for themselves? Well, as Christians, we should care for those who can't care for themselves because God has cared for us. That's why we care. That's why we take care of the needy, because we have received mercy, and as a result, we show mercy, and we are leading in that as the body of Christ, and that influences the culture around us. On the other hand, bad theology is idolatry. It's not just uh, bad in an innocuous sense. It's actually sin. If I'm not thinking rightly about God, I'm thinking wrongly about God, and that's idolatry. That's God as I wish him to be or hope him to be or imagine that he might be. That's not good. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Theology is practical. If you do not listen to theology... That will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. Bad theology uh, is idolatry. Bad theology is also uh, powerless. Several years ago, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a, a real small book, great book. I recommend you read it sometime. It's called Your God is Too Small. And the thesis of his book was this. Fundamental problem in your life is bad theology. (laughs) That's what he's arguing. Do you worry? Yes, you do. Why? Because your God is too small. You see your problems as huge and God is smaller than your problems. Your God is too small. You have bad theology. Do you become angry? You know what your problem is? Bad theology. Your God is too small. You don't believe that God can, in the best way, execute justice in the world. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. He is... Powerless. Good theology reminds us you no know, God is great, and God is greater than all things ever. Another quote for you from J.I. Packer. It says we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it. A disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. And men and women, if you you don't know God, not just know about him, but if you don't know God, life will not make sense to you. Students, I know we have a few of you graduating, and I, I wanna ha- if you're going to leave, I want to have one more crack at you right before you, you leave. I want to make sure that you have understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're taking it with you that you believed. Jesus died for you. And He didn't die simply for the sins of all the world, that, that's true, but He died for you, He died for your sins. And as you leave here, you need to own that truth for yourself, personally, individually. You need to have reached out in faith and said, God, I believe. I believe Jesus died for me. And because Jesus died for you, you have life that lasts forever, and you have meaning and purpose in life. You don't have to stumble blindfolded through life. You can go to uh, graduate school if that's next, or you can go to your first job if that's next, and you have meaning and purpose in life, and that is to honor and glorify God in everything that you do. Knowing that all of life will not be simple, all of life will not be easy, there will be trials and tribulations, and yet God is causing all things to work together for your good. He's taking all of those experiences, the things that feel like blessings and the things that feel like hardships, and he's conforming you into the very image of Christ. Your life has meaning, it has purpose. So you'd go through all of these experiences and you would radiate Jesus to the world around you. That's a good life. That's the meaning and purpose of life. And if you have good theology, you walk out of here with that in view. If you have bad theology, then you begin to value things that simply don't matter. (laughs) And you live for things that don't matter. You live for uh, honor, for the next promotion, for prestige. You live for possessions, for houses and cars. You don't live for the people around you. You don't live for the nations that need to know Jesus. Because what does Jesus love? He loves every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He loves people. People matter. And so if you invest your life in people... Your life will count, and it will count for all of eternity. You know, it transformed my life, literally transformed my life when I was in college and I heard this phrase, make your life count for eternity. And I heard it week after week after week, make your life count for eternity. It finally grabbed me. I didn't know what I was going, going to do with that. I didn't think it would be ministry. I thought it would be in academia, but I knew one thing. Whatever I do, I want my life to count for eternity. And that means invest in people. So as you go out from here, our 2016 graduates, go out and invest in what matters. Okay? Good theology is powerful. Good theology transforms lives. Character overflows in godly behavior. That's the end of the process. I want you to read with me, if you would, turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, in verse 18. Exodus 33 and verse 18. Then Moses said to God, I pray you, show me your glory. God said to him, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That is, I will give you a theology lesson, (laughs) Moses. I'm going to give you a personal, individualized theology lesson in the cleft of the rock. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That is, no man can absorb the fullness of my glory, because it's simply overwhelming. That's theology. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put... You in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That is, you will see a a glimpse of who I am in all the fullness of my glory. And you know what? That glimpse, which was not even the fullness of God's glory, but just a glimpse completely transformed Moses. He had to have more of that. Every day he had to go to the tent of meeting and we're told he would pull back that veil. And as a result of interacting with the glory of God, just a shadow, just a glimpse of the glory of God, literally Moses glowed. And we're told in the book of Daniel that the same will happen to us when we get to see God as he is. We will shine. We will be beautiful as God is beautiful. It will change us physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. Moses was changed. His character was transformed, right? He was formerly a reluctant, fearful man. But then he stepped into leadership and he led millions of people through the wilderness. Was he perfected? No, not yet. That didn't happen in this lifetime. Wouldn't happen until he would actually see a greater glimpse of the glory of God and then he would be completely transformed. That's what God does for us. And I think one of the things that's most beautiful to me about this story is simply this. God wants to show himself. God wants to be known. He's not the God of the agnostics who's trying to hide. God wants to be known. God reveals himself to all people in their conscience. Romans chapter two tells us that we are spiritual beings and the spirit of God is speaking to every person's spirit, believer and non-believer, through conscience. God is revealing truth. God's revealed himself in nature. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day-to-day pours forth speech. Night-to-night reveals knowledge. God wants to be known. God has revealed himself most perfectly in his word. Right, his word which reveals his son. His word is truth. His word is the source. And we're going to argue when we study bibliology, the study of the Bible, the theology of the Bible, that this is the place that we go to know Truth. Now, at this time of year, every year, the same thing happens. Folks are uh, graduating and leaving, or they're going on summer vacation, and I'll get phone calls or emails or whatever saying, "Hey, got any uh, recommendations for what I should read for the summer?" And I remember one uh, year, several years back, I came home and uh, told Tracy, "I got another request. What should I read for the summer?" And I said, "Do you have any ideas? You know, um, anything new that you're reading that you would recommend?" And she said, "Well, do you ever ask people if they're reading the Bible?" I was like, oh, (laughs) that's a good question. No, actually, I don't know. So, you know, next time I got one of those questions, I said, what are you reading in the Bible? And I started asking that question every time. So what are you reading in the Bible? And you know what? Almost every time I'm told, well, um, nothing actually right now. I'm not reading the Bible. But I'm listening to seven podcasts a week or whatever, right? That's what I get all the time. And so now, you know what my answer is? Well, why don't you start With the Bible. Martin Luther once said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. Let's start there. So we're going to study theology this summer and I have um, just a couple of rules for you as we go on this journey. Uh, The first is humility. Romans chapter 11 The Apostle Paul wrote, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul longed to know God, and so he searched out everything he could find about God. But then at the end of the quest, he had to say, God is great. there are things that I just can't search out. He wants to be known, and he's revealing himself. But I must humbly bow before him because God is great, and I'm not. C.S. Lewis wrote, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down on something, you cannot see what is above you. So as we approach this topic... Let's come humbly before the Lord. Let's come with hearts that are repentant before the Lord. Uh, it has been my experience that normally when people can't understand or believe certain theologies. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. There's something in their life that's creating a barrier for knowing God. So as we close, I'd like to give you just a moment. Uh, let's go silently before the Lord in prayer and get our hearts prepared, uh, not just for this week, but for this summer and for this study. And as you bow before the Lord, I want to read to you a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer to guide us in our thinking. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love Thee and worthily magnify Thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, make us people who are ready and prepared to listen and to be changed, transformed by the work of your Spirit in our hearts. Father, we confess our need to know you. It's our greatest need to know you and to, to learn to love you and to love the things that you love. And we pray, Father, that as we continue study of your word this summer, Uh, that you do a a new and dramatic work. You stretch us beyond where we are in this moment. We would welcome that process of change, even when it's convicting and hard and challenging. We would listen. We would bend. We would be open. Father, I thank you that you love us uh, too much to leave us in the dark. I thank you that you love us so much that you make yourself available. Open yourself to us and reveal yourself. Pray that you give us a greater hunger to know you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Graduates, please come back and visit us again. See you soon.